Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. We got our first judge. I'm so excited to introduce you to Judge Monique Diaz. Judge Diaz is a San Antonio native who, prior to being elected to the bench, ran her own law firm for nearly a decade. She represented low-income families, victims of domestic violence, civil litigants, and small businesses. In the public sector, she served as a city attorney and a city prosecutor. In 2018, she was elected to the bench. We talk about what it's like being a judge, as well as her efforts to reduce domestic violence and increase family reunification. She also talks about running and serving as a Latina and how she encourages future generations of diverse candidates to do the same. Enjoy. Judge Monique Diaz, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It is wonderful to be speaking with you today. Thank you for having me, Ryan. I'm really excited to be here. We have done hundreds of episodes, and you are our first judge. So I have a lot of questions. I'm excited to look at this aspect of public service. And let's just start with giving listeners a sense of what your day-to-day job is like. Sure. Well, I am a civil district court judge, and so I like to explain it like this. I deal with families and money primarily. So from at least eight to five every day, I hear cases involving divorce, custody, child support, CPS cases, child protective services. And I also hear personal injury cases, contract disputes, oil and gas, medical malpractice, you name it. So everything but criminal law and probate law. And we have a really interesting system. I'm from San Antonio. That's where I preside as a judge. We have what's called a a presiding court system Uh, for the law nerds out there. They might appreciate this. You might think of a judge as normally having their own docket that you control and move at your own pace. Well, we have 14 civil district court judges just like me in Bear County, and we each share, all of us share every single civil case that gets filed in Bear County. So we have one court where all of the cases are called every morning. It's called our presiding court. That judge is like the dealer of the cases, and they essentially will call a case and send it out to whatever judge is available that day. Therefore, as a judge, I never know what case I'm going to get from one day to the next, and lawyers and and litigants also don't know what judge they're going to get. So it's a really interesting, unique system that we have that is intended to and is really successful at being really efficient at moving cases forward. You never have to wait on a judge to get a hearing. You can just set it and be assured that you will have your case heard any day that you need it heard. I mean, that's fascinating. How do you prepare when you have a job like that where you don't know what the day's issues will be? You don't. (laughs) The best 
preparation that, that you can do is really knowing what you don't know. I rely heavily on the attorneys to brief me on unique and interesting issues that I, I may not be familiar with. You know, if, if we're not ready to rule right then and there, we can take matters under advisement. We have attorneys that also uh, counsel all 14 of us and they can help us do it a deeper dive to make sure we make the right decision. So there's really no preparation, which can be nerve wracking, but also at the same time relieves that uh, pressure a little bit of having to be ready for everything that comes before you. You're never going to be ready for everything that's before you. You have to accept it. And again, just rely on your team, which we have a great team that assists us in making sure that we're serving our community and making the right decisions. It strikes me that an incredibly taxing position to be in, but also some high pressure and emotional, especially with the family court issues and CPS issues that you mentioned. How do you prepare yourself for what could be, you know, really the most difficult moments in many families' lives? It's a good question. I mean, most people come to the courts seeking relief at a time that is the most difficult time in their lives. It is high stakes, high pressure for the folks involved. I think it helps that I practiced in those areas for about a decade before taking the bench. You also really need to have a good support system. I rely on my colleagues. We vent, share with one another uh, when we have those difficult cases that come up when we're really questioning, you know, did I make a decision in the best interest of that child, which is really a challenging decision to make and very burdensome. I think the best way you can prepare is, is having a good support system and also really having clear lines and making sure that you do the best that you can to leave work behind and not take it home with you. That's easy to do in any profession, of course, to have that spillover, but that's one of the ways to maintain your mental health, the strength of your family unit, as well as to kind of rely on your support system, but also be sure that you're leaving everything at work and not taking it home with you. I can't imagine. It's just so important to have somebody who's there and caring and empathetic, but also a little removed to navigate these difficult times for families at at that moment. Can you talk a little bit about how you found yourself in this position? I've been struck of the variety of law that you practiced over time and talk about your career path and how you ended up serving as a judge. So for me, my career path really began sort of before I was born. My parents, I'm the proud daughter of a Puerto Rican mother and Dominican father. They've been together since fourth grade. And they wanted to start a family and decided to to move to the mainland, to Texas and San Antonio to start a family because they really believed in the American story, the quintessential story that, you know, we all still, at least I do, believe in very strongly, which is that this nation provides opportunity for anyone that is able to willing to work hard and to be really dedicated. I know there's a big asterisk next to that. Of course, there's different opportunities for different people in this nation. I I recognize that. But that's what they wanted for their family. And they instilled that in me at a very young age. I was also blessed to be raised by my grandmother as well, who I, I still remember so vividly to this day. Her and I would, we would say our prayers at the end of every night. She'd sit on the edge of my bed and, you know, we spoke primarily Spanish. So it was my first language. And so we'd end our prayers with her saying, Mija, dale gracias a Dios por tus bendiciones y reza por los desafortunados, which means thank God for your many blessings and pray for the less fortunate. And so 
that left a lasting impact on me. I didn't have much growing up. I had, you know, what I needed though. I had food on my plate, clothes on my back, a roof over my head, loving family, public education, thankfully. And so I knew at a young age that I wanted to do something to give back to my community, to specifically help children in need. And, you know, fast forward to my adulthood, I studied sociology and then decided to go to law school and to use my law degree to hang up my own shingle, which I did as soon as I graduated with the goal of helping families in need. I soon learned very quickly that those families in need also had a plethora of other issues and concerns, ranging from criminal issues to, you know, probate, small business, contract issues. And I decided to take whatever came in the door. And I grew a robust general law practice, was a plaintiff's attorney and a defense attorney. I was a city attorney and city prosecutor for eight municipalities across South Texas. And that's what I was doing most recently in 2016 when President Trump was elected, which I think we've all come to learn really served as an impetus for women in particular across the nation who were, were very motivated for different and similar reasons to, to run for office. And I was no exception to that. I personally, being a Latina from San Antonio, predominantly, you know, his Spanish community, South Texas, I took great personal offense when I had to listen to, you know, our president make comments about, you know, essentially generalizing that all Mexicans are criminals saying that a Mexican-American judge who presided over his case couldn't be impartial because he was Mexican-American and he had, a, you know, had the border wall issue. And so, you know, having the background in law, being a Latina, really believing in the integrity of our judicial system and in the goodness of our people, I wanted to do something more than what I was doing to give back to my community in a way that to demonstrate to them that there is goodness in, in our leadership, that you can be treated with dignity and deserve to be treated with dignity and respect, no matter the color of your skin, where you come from, who you love, how much money is in your pocket. And I saw an, a personal opportunity to step up and run for judge and, and show at least the people in my community that respect and dignity by example. And I'd like to think that's what we've been able to achieve. I'm in my fifth year now. I was just reelected last year, four-year terms. And that's really what we strive to do in the, the 150th Civil District Court. And I'm really proud of what we've been able to accomplish for our community. You should be. Can you talk a little bit about your dedication to public service? I mean, even in private practice, you were clearly dedicated to helping underrepresented communities navigate the legal system. Clearly, it comes from your grandmother or your upbringing but what are the benefits of pursuing a life in public law? Well, law is incredibly challenging. It's, it's a challenging profession as it is. It's very taxing. It can be very stressful on lawyers. And one of the benefits in being passionate about the type of law you practice, for me at least, feeling like I was giving back at least as much as I was getting back from the profession really helped motivate me to keep going on those difficult days where you're sleep deprived and and you have a hearing or you have a trial and you know everyone has their own life experiences and challenges that you're facing while you're in your profession or practicing law on those most difficult days knowing that I was helping someone get through even greater challenges knowing that I was giving back 
in a way that would hopefully positively impact someone's life really kept me going. And it still does now as a judge as well on those taxing days, as you mentioned, what, you know, those days that I come back to work after having a really challenging hearing the day before, I keep reminding myself of the purpose and hearing stories from people who I have worked with, who I've impacted also really helps me going. I really appreciate when people come back and, you know, kind of thank me for, something that I did that I usually don't even remember that I had done, uh, but that left an impact on their lives. For me, that that's everything. Public service, you know, has its benefits and people get different things out of it. But for me, I'm truly fulfilled by just knowing that I'm helping someone else in need in their most difficult time, knowing that I'm able to use my God-given gifts to give back just really keeps me going. Well, one of the ways you've given back is not only your work presiding over cases, but really trying to do some prevention work, especially in the area of domestic violence. Can you talk a little bit about those efforts and why you chose to focus your energies there? Yes. Thank you for that question. Domestic violence is really an issue worldwide. In fact, the World Health Organization declared it a global pandemic in and of itself. And so in Bear County, the the county that I preside in, unfortunately, in 2018, the year that I got elected, we had the distinction of having the highest number of domestic violence homicides committed by a man against a woman in the entire state of Texas. And that was an impetus for our community to really call upon our their leaders, our leaders, to take action, to do something more different than what we had done before. And I was fortunate enough to work with a colleague of mine, a, a then colleague, Judge Peter Sakai, who's now our, our county judge. And we formed what's called the Collaborative Commission on, on Domestic Violence, or CCDV, It's a coordinated community response to domestic violence that takes a public health approach to domestic violence, really looks at it as a public health issue, acknowledging that there are evidence-based strategies that can be implemented at an upstream level to help prevent downstream problems like domestic violence and homicide. So what we've done is we have, for the first time in our community, brought together at one table all of the local stakeholders in domestic violence, the heads of our law enforcement, judiciary, prosecution, nonprofits, healthcare organizations, and local universities, and even interfaith organizations as well. And we're all talking about what issues we have that are specific to our community. We've conducted assessments, a lot of research to identify what those specific issues are, and we're matching them up with evidence-based strategies. And then working to implement those strategies in our community. We've been doing it since 2019. We have, I can't give credit to our work, obviously, for our domestic violence homicide numbers going down, but they have gone down. It's really difficult to make those ties. But we're, we're really excited because we've implemented some really innovative strategies that I do think overall are really improving the system that's often really hard to enter It's really hard from what we hear from those impacted by domestic violence for those folks to really get the help that they need for them to understand what resources are available. And so those are some of the things that we've worked on. I've 
been able to bring millions of dollars to our judicial system in particular to help improve our, our judicial system's response to domestic violence. We have a new CPS court with a concentration in domestic violence. Those are cases where children are removed from their parents because there is domestic violence. We uh, have implemented a program which is somewhat in jeopardy right now to require domestic violence offenders or those who've been accused of domestic violence to actually surrender their firearms because they are prohibited under state law from possessing them. And a number of different things we've done. I could talk for hours and hours about that, but we're really proud of that work and are working with other communities across the nation to collaborate, share ideas, much in the same way that the New Deal kind of brings together leaders across the nation to share ideas and approaches. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. That's what we're trying to do with the Collaborative Commission on Domestic Violence. Can you tell us why the firearm component may be in danger? It seems like a common sense, straightforward thing that if somebody's engaging in domestic violence, you don't want them owning a firearm. Well, the Supreme Court of the United States in a case in New York State uh, last year ruled that the firearm laws in New York State went too far and infringed upon the Second Amendment. Without going into too much detail, essentially they found that having additional restrictions against ownership of firearms or brandishing firearms was contrary to what the you know, founders of our nation intended and based it on a historical analysis saying that there was no historical basis for those prohibitions to be in place. And so this kind of new historical construct is now being tested at other levels in different states. There was a case in Texas, not in my district, but in the El Paso district, wherein a domestic violence offender who had been convicted of domestic violence, was later charged with possession of a firearm unlawfully. And his attorneys challenged that under the new, the Bruin construct, asserting that there was no historical context for the prohibition against domestic violence offenders possessing firearms at all. And so the appellate court essentially agreed with them. And that's now going up to the Supreme Court of the United States and is expected to be taken up by them. And it's a case that we're all monitoring to see what impact that's going to have. So as of right now, the state of Texas still has its own prohibition against possession of firearms for domestic violence offenders. The federal law is is what was challenged in that case. But of course, whatever the U.S. Supreme Court determines could have an impact on our state law as well. There are similar laws like that across the nation, in states across the nation. And the interesting thing is that, of course, this is not something that there's going to likely be like a historical context for because domestic violence, we know, wasn't even, at least in the state of Texas, it wasn't even an offense for a a married man to commit domestic violence against a woman until the 1970s. So this is something uh, new, obviously, post, you know, the Constitution and our founders. So I'm, I'm really intrigued in how the Supreme Court is going to analyze that. Whatever they say, it will be the law of the land. And so that that's why kind of all of the work that we put into developing this process to remove firearms from domestic violence offenders is in jeopardy because it could change from one day to the next, depending on what the U.S. Supreme Court says. Scary. We should all keep an eye out and hope common sense prevails. 
Can you talk about another one of your policy areas you've really been engaged in is an effort to reunify families and especially some of the stigma that may prevent reunification. Can you talk about those efforts? Yes. So when we're talking about reunifying families and the work that I've done to reunify families, it's been primarily around those child protective services cases where children are removed from their parents for whatever reason, domestic violence, drug use, alcohol abuse, neglect, other abuse. And in Bear County, we have a unique children's court program that encompasses a lot, but two of the specialty courts that I was privileged to preside over for a long time were an early intervention court and a drug court that really focus on wrapping these families around with all of the services that they need to overcome those obstacles that are interfering between them being reunified with their children. What we know is that oftentimes parents who are in the CPS system are victims themselves of some sort of trauma that they've experienced through their lives, victims of abuse, neglect themselves, and that is passed through generations. And so what we look to do is rather than punish the parents for the behavior that led to their children being removed, we work with them to rehabilitate them very intensively and to get them to the point of having the support system that they need to be able to give us the confidence that the children will be safe in their hands, to be mentally well, to be physically well, to be the best parents that they can be for their children. And we have a great success rate through these really intensive programs in Bear County of reunifying families with children. We also see this just in the regular, you know, divorce context, custody battles on varying levels, but we apply the same principles, or at least I do, to those cases as well. When I see parents come into court in a divorce or a custody battle, and one parent has one of those issues that I mentioned, we really also work with them to get, to the extent possible, the resources and the support that we can to help them overcome those issues. We have a specialty. One of the programs I mentioned earlier that we've implemented is the Family Violence Prevention Program, where we have staff that will help those individuals in need identify resources that match them. So if they don't have insurance, we'll find counseling or other support services that they can afford that have sliding scales or that don't charge, for example. If they don't have a job and can't you know, work to pay child support, we'll help them find a job to the extent we can. If they don't have transportation to make it to their visitation with their children or to court, we'll get them bus passes or you know, find alternative options for them. So those are the kinds of approaches that many of our judges in Bear County take to reunifying families and understanding that a strong family is the foundation of our community. And that's one of the most important things that we can invest in. Can you talk a little bit more about this preventative side in all the aspects of law that you've been working on? Usually, you know, court cases are sort of the end of the line resolutions. But if you really want to break cycles of poverty and abuse or you want to slow recidivism, you really need these holistic approaches. But they're still relatively new, as far as I can tell, in the judicial system. How do you bring that thinking and how was it received when you want to do these specialty courts, these wraparound services? You know, candidly, I would say it's overall been very well received in Bear County because of the 
judges before me, you know, I'm not bringing this as something new to our judicial system. There were judges before me that really focused on that and probably struggled more so <laughs> with resistance back then. It's now something that's more really embraced in our community. However, there are some naysayers still that kind of think the way we've always done things is fine, right? And that's going to always be there, right? It's just a matter of not letting those folks get in the way of progress. And I think we have enough people that are interested in that progress that are really working hard and dedicated to that approach. And it's been successful in Bear County. So while there are naysayers, it hasn't been strong enough to really get in the way of us doing good work in Bear County. Fantastic. That's great to hear. I want to ask, I mean, I imagine that you don't look like most of the judges, at least in our country, and sort of what you do to bring the next generation of Latinas into the judicial system to serve as judges, uh, attorneys, and what that experience has been like for you. Well, it's been interesting. When I began my legal career, there were very few, if any, judges that looked like me. Of course, when I was younger, I didn't have female or Latina judicial role models to look up to. And so it's really been fascinating in Bear County to watch the shift in the demographic of our judiciary. Right now, if you came to our courthouse, you would be hard pressed to find a male judge. <laughs> we have very few male judges and most of the judges that we have, if not all of them, are now females of color, primarily Hispanic. We also have some black judges and, and just a couple of men. And so that's unique to Bear County. I understand that it's not like that across the nation, but in South Texas and in particular in our community, it's been very exciting to watch the shift towards our electorate voting primarily for women to serve in these positions. And I think that's a recognition of the need for that diversity, a really strong desire from our community to be better represented in these positions. And so that's been wonderful. One of the things I do to help, you know, students and from any age from kindergarten up through law school is I take every opportunity to go speak to them, to show them that you know, to really set an example for them in a way that I didn't have when I was a kid so that they can see someone in a leadership position that looks like them and understand that they can get there as well. So mentorship is a big priority for me and also just going out into my community and speaking to the next generations of leaders and motivating them and showing them that it is possible that they all have value and something to add and they can be leaders as well. When you're out there, are you ever surprised by the questions you get? I mean, I got to say, I don't remember a lot of judges coming to my kindergarten class and engaging with me. What's been your experience being out in the public? Oh, it's great. I love the questions that we get from folks in public, especially the younger ones. You get some surprising, really profound questions like, what is justice? What is law? Why do we have law? <laughs> questions like that that I really just love trying to explain to folks. And then, you know, I just talked to future law school students earlier this week, and, you know, the types of questions they have were really around kind of, you know, tell me more about the job. 
What is it like to run for office? What would I need to do if I wanted to run for office and kind of breaking down those steps for them and you know what I did to get where I am? It's really great to be able to assist those members of our community to hopefully achieve their dreams one day. But really talking to those little kindergartners in the elementary school kids is my absolute favorite thing. Yeah, it's one of the... I left elected office in January, and it's one of the few things I miss is going and talking to classrooms of students and just engaging with the community. As you mentioned, you were elected, and we have seen the election of judges become a much more significant issue in recent years. Can you talk a little bit about what you see as the upsides and the downsides of having elected judges? Certainly. In in Texas, we're one of six or seven states that elect our judges on a partisan basis. So that's pretty unique. Obviously, as a judge, I'm not permitted to make rulings in any way that are impacted by my politics. I look at the law, I interpret the law and apply it to the facts of the case. But we still have to run under a particular party. In Texas, I know there's a push every legislative session to do it differently, to perhaps appoint our judges instead of elect them. And some of the arguments I've heard for both sides are, of course, that if we appoint our judges or if we allow the powers that be to appoint our judges, we can be sure that we have more qualified judges that really have the experience that they need. That's one of the kind of main things that you hear in favor of judges being appointed. And when you look to states that appoint their judges, you do tend to find kind of an older judiciary, sometimes a more candidly white male judiciary. And so in the arguments in favor of electing our judges are that, you know, it number one allows opportunity for those people that may, for various reasons, not be kind of in that system, able to kind of rise through the hierarchy to be appointed by the powers that be, but who otherwise would be really qualified, wonderful judges for our community. It opens up those opportunities for folks like me that, you know, really, I didn't have a support system in the law that I could kind of work my way through and get appointed into this type of a position. I had to earn it and in a different way. So I think we see that the face of your judiciary is very different. It tends to be more diverse, more representative of your population, of your community when you are elected. Additionally, in the appointment process, oftentimes when you're appointed, there's different systems. One, you could just be continuously appointed by, again, the powers that be, you could be a governor, it could be a committee. Other states have a system where you're initially appointed and then you have to seek reelection. But oftentimes they're more comfortable positions where if you're doing a bad job, your electorate, the community cannot vote you out. And so when you're electing your judges, if you're doing a bad job, if you're not showing up to work, your community is going to recognize it and you won't be reelected. Right. So it empowers your community to have a voice in who represents them, to have a voice in you know who's running their courts and to really hold us accountable and make sure that we're doing the job that we should be doing. And if not, we don't get reelected. So, you know, pros and cons both ways, but I obviously appreciate the opportunity that I was given to run for this position and to give back to my community because I was able to be elected to it. And can you tell us a little bit about what that campaign was like? How did you sort of launch and what was that experience like? It was great. I love campaigns. On the side of my law practice, I failed to mention, I also 
helped manage some campaigns and fundraise for other candidates. So I was very active in our local political community. So when I decided to run, it was very natural for me. I felt really comfortable in that space and I really enjoyed it. I absolutely loved going around and talking to members of our community, knocking on doors, block walking, and finding out what issues really mattered to the people that I was hoping to serve. And just having those one-on-one conversations is absolutely priceless. I, you know, would do it all over again if I could. It's a lot of work, of course. It's what you want to put into it. I put a lot into it. I worked during the day, had court and hearings, you know, again, from about eight to five. And then I would go to anywhere from three to five events every day after work, you know, all day on the weekends, block walking Saturdays and Sundays. So it was a lot of work, but I was blessed to have the support of my family, really critical for anyone that is interested in running for any position to really sit down and talk to your family first, make sure that you will have that support system because you will need it making sure that you're in a good financial position, that you at least have a financial plan for how you will manage both campaigning and doing whatever job you are doing. I think those were really critical and and reasons why I was able to run because I had both the family support and you know had a plan in place for supporting my family while I was running. But I would do it all over again. That is very good advice. I often see people... They get into the campaign and campaigns, as you mentioned, are hard and taxing. And then they hadn't thought through either the financial piece or the family piece. And then it just starts to snowball and it's it can be a very difficult process. Can you talk briefly? I mean, Bear County, Texas, you know, I think Texas, because of its size and diversity and the changes, captures a lot of the national conversation. What do you see going on in your corner of Texas that you think the rest of the country should know about? Ooh, that's a good question. I think in San Antonio, my little corner of Texas, we have some really incredible things going on right now. We have, as I mentioned a little bit before, we have a great just slate of leadership, not just in our courts, but across the board. We have really great diversity and representation. And that's one of the things that I'm really proud of that our community has done well. And that I hope other communities will look to as an example. You know, we have, we're military city USA. So we have a really strong military presence and we have a really strong cyber intelligence presence as well. And that's one of the things that we're kind of known for and other communities kind of look to the work that we've done in that area. One of the things that I'm really hopeful will happen soon that has been kind of in discussion for a long time is between San Antonio and Austin. You know, we're really hoping to get some sort of a high-speed rail installed, implemented for easier access and travel. I know my dad works in Austin, which is about a two and a half hour drive from San Antonio, commutes every single day from San Antonio to Austin. So you know that's one of the things that we are hoping will happen soon. It's been in discussions for a long time and, and that when it happens, I'm going to put it out there. That'll be something that I think, you know, communities around the nation can look to as well. And I know I mentioned before the work we're doing in domestic violence really is also something 
Unfortunately, pretty unique. There are many other communities across the nation that are taking that collaborative approach, but I think more communities, more cities across the nation would benefit from making sure that those conversations are happening amongst all of the stakeholders. Because again, domestic violence is an issue in every community. It doesn't discriminate between anything, socioeconomic status, gender, race. I mean, it it equally impacts all of us and every community. And so I think that's one of the things we're doing really well is bringing those stakeholders together in a way that other communities could benefit from. I think you're right. I think it's a great model. And God, I hope it's built to cut down on your dad's commute. That's a long one. (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) So I just want to take a moment to thank you. We don't have a lot of judges in the New Deal But I think you're an example of why we may need more. I think that while legislators can make significant changes, so too can judges by crafting systems to better serve people and their communities. And we love having you in the New Deal. Thank you so much. I am honored to be a member, and I was really excited to join everyone at the Idea Summit in Detroit last month and to get to talk to folks in person which is something kind of new still post-COVID, but to just exchange ideas with a diverse group of people. I was able to moderate a conversation about, you know, the state of abortion access post-Dobbs. And it was really fascinating hearing how individuals are dealing with this issue in their different communities, sharing ideas with one another was just so beneficial. And I'm really grateful to be a member of the New Deal for that reason and many others. So I'm, I'm thankful to be a member, thankful to be asked to be on the podcast and just to spend some time with you today, Ryan. It's been my pleasure. And I look forward to seeing you at the next New Deal gathering and the one after that. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Ryan. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.